Letter 10 On Living to Oneself Yes, I do not change my opinion. Avoid the many, avoid the few, avoid even the individual. I know of no one with whom I should be willing to have you shared. And see what an opinion of you I have, for I dare to trust you with your own self. Crates, they say, the disciple of the very Stilbo whom I mentioned in a former letter, noticed a young man walking by himself, and asked him what he was doing all alone. I am communing with myself, replied the youth. Pray be careful, then, said Crates, and take good heed. You are communing with a bad man. When persons are in mourning, or fearful about something, we are accustomed to watch them that we may prevent them from making a wrong use of their loneliness. No thoughtless person ought to be left alone. In such cases he only plans folly and heaps up future dangers for himself or for others. He brings into play his base desires. The mind displays what fear or shame used to repress. It wets his boldness, stirs his passions, and goads his anger. And finally, the only benefit that solitude confers, the habit of trusting no man and of fearing no witnesses, is lost to the fool, for he betrays himself. Mark, therefore, what my hopes are for you, nay, rather, what I am promising myself, inasmuch as hope is merely the title of an uncertain blessing. I do not know any person with whom I should prefer you to associate rather than yourself. I remember in what a great-souled way you hurled forth certain phrases, and how full of strength they were. I immediately congratulated myself, and said, These words did not come from the edge of the lips. These utterances have a solid foundation. This man is not one of the many. He has regard for his real welfare. Speak and live in this way. See to it that nothing keeps you down. As for your former prayers, you may dispense the gods from answering them. Offer new prayers. Pray for a sound mind and for good health, first of soul and then of body. And, of course, you should offer those prayers frequently. Call boldly upon God. You will not be asking him for that which belongs to another. But. I must, as is my custom, send a little gift along with this letter. It is a true saying which I have found in Athenodorus. Know that you art freed from all desires when thou hast reached such a point that thou prayest to God for nothing except what thou canst pray for openly. But how foolish men are now! They whisper the basest of prayers to heaven but if anyone listens, they are silent at once. That which they are unwilling for men to know, they communicate to God. Do you not think, then, that some such wholesome advice as this could be given you? Live among men as if God beheld you. Speak with God as if men were listening. Farewell. Letter. 11. On the Blush of Modesty Your friend and I have had a conversation. 
He is a man of ability. His very first words showed what spirit and understanding he possesses, and what progress he has already made. He gave me a foretaste, and he will not fail to answer thereto. For he spoke not from forethought, but was suddenly caught off his guard. When he tried to collect himself, he could scarcely banish that hue of modesty, which is a good sign in a young man. The blush that spread over his face seemed so to rise from the depths, and I feel sure that his habit of blushing will stay with him after he has strengthened his character, stripped off all his faults, and become wise. For by no wisdom can natural weaknesses of the body be removed. That which is implanted and inborn can be toned down by training, but not overcome. The steadiest speaker, when before the public, often breaks into a perspiration, as if he had wearied or overheated himself. Some tremble in the knees when they rise to speak. I know of some whose teeth chatter, whose tongues falter, whose lips quiver. Training and experience can never shake off this habit. Nature exerts her own power, and through such a weakness makes her presence known even to the strongest. I know that the blush, too, is a habit of this sort, spreading suddenly over the faces of the most dignified men. It is, indeed, more prevalent in youth, because of the warmer blood and the sensitive countenance. Nevertheless, both seasoned men and aged men are affected by it. Some are most dangerous when they redden, as if they were letting all their sense of shame escape. Sulla, when the blood mantled his cheeks, was in his fiercest mood. Pompey had the most sensitive cast of countenance. He always blushed in the presence of a gathering, and especially at a public assembly. Fabianus also, I remember, reddened when he appeared as a witness before the Senate, and his embarrassment became him to a remarkable degree. Such a habit is not due to mental weakness, but to the novelty of a situation. An inexperienced person is not necessarily confused, but is usually affected, because he slips into this habit by natural tendency of the body. Just as certain men are full-blooded, so others are of a quick and mobile blood that rushes to the face at once. As I remarked, wisdom can never remove this habit, for if she could rub out all our faults, she would be mistress of the universe. Whatever is assigned to us by the terms of our birth and the blend in our constitutions will stick with us, no matter how hard or how long the soul may have tried to master itself. And we cannot forbid these feelings any more than we can summon them. Actors in the theatre, who imitate the emotions, who portray fear and nervousness, who depict sorrow, imitate bashfulness by hanging their heads, lowering their voices, and keeping their eyes fixed and rooted upon the ground. They cannot, however, muster a blush, for the blush cannot be prevented or acquired. Wisdom will not assure us of a remedy or give us help against it. It comes or goes unbidden, and is a law unto itself. But my letter calls for its closing sentence. Hear and take to heart this useful and wholesome motto. Cherish some man of high character, and keep him ever before your eyes, living as if he were watching you, and ordering all your actions 
as if he beheld them. Such, my dear Lucilius, is the counsel of Epicurus. He has quite properly given us a guardian and an attendant. We can get rid of most sins if we have a witness who stands near us when we are likely to go wrong. The soul should have someone whom it can respect, one by whose authority it may make even its inner shrine more hallowed. Happy is the man who can make others better, not merely when he is in their company, but even when he is in their thoughts. And happy also is he who can so revere a man as to calm and regulate himself by calling him to mind. One who can so revere another will soon be himself worthy of reverence. Choose, therefore, a Cato. Or, if Cato seems too severe a model, choose some Lilius, a gentler spirit. Choose a master, whose life, conversation, and soul-expressing face have satisfied you. Picture him always to yourself, as your protector or your pattern. For we must indeed have someone according to whom we may regulate our characters. You can never straighten that which is crooked, unless you use a ruler. Farewell. Letter 16 On Philosophy, the Guide of Life It is clear to you, I am sure, Lucilius, that no man can live a happy life, or even a supportable life, without the study of wisdom. You know also that a happy life is reached when our wisdom is brought to completion, but that life is at least endurable even when our wisdom is only begun. This idea, however, clear though it is, must be strengthened and implanted more deeply by daily reflection. It is more important for you to keep the resolutions you have already made than to go on and make noble ones. You must persevere, must develop new strength by continuous study until that which is only a good inclination becomes a good, settled purpose. Hence, you no longer need to come to me with much talk and protestations. I know that you have made great progress. I understand the feelings which prompt your words. They are not feigned or specious words. Nevertheless, I shall tell you what I think, that at present I have hopes for you, but not yet perfect trust, and I wish that you would adopt the same attitude towards yourself. There is no reason why you should put confidence in yourself too quickly and readily. Examine yourself. Scrutinize and observe yourself in diverse ways, but mark before all else, whether it is in philosophy or merely in life itself that you have made progress. Philosophy is no trick to catch the public. It is not devised for show. It is a matter not of words but of facts. It is not pursued in order that the day may yield some amusement before it is spent, or that our leisure may be relieved of a tedium that irks us. It molds and constructs the soul. It orders our life, guides our conduct, shows us what we should do and what we should leave undone. It sits at the helm and directs our course as we waver amid uncertainties. Without it, no one can live fearlessly or in peace of mind. Countless things that happen every hour call for advice, and such advice is to be sought in philosophy. Perhaps someone will say, How can philosophy help me if fate exists? Of what avail is philosophy if God rules the universe? 
Of what avail is it if chance governs everything? For not only is it impossible to change things that are determined, but it is also impossible to plan beforehand against what is undetermined. Either God has forestalled my plans and decided what I am to do, or else fortune gives no free play to my plans. Whether the truth, Lucilius, lies in one or in all of these views, we must be philosophers. Whether fate binds us down by an inexorable law, or whether God as arbiter of the universe has arranged everything, or whether chance drives and tosses human affairs without method, philosophy ought to be our defense. She will encourage us to obey God cheerfully, but fortune defiantly. She will teach us to follow God and endure chance. But it is not my purpose now to be led into a discussion as to what is within our own control. If foreknowledge is supreme, or if a chain of fated events drags us along in its clutches, or if the sudden and the unexpected play the tyrant over us, I return now to my warning and my exhortation, that you should not allow the impulse of your spirit to weaken and grow cold. Hold fast to it and establish it firmly, in order that what is now impulse may become a habit of the mind. If I know you well, you have already been trying to find out, from the very beginning of my letter, what little contribution it brings to you. Sift the letter, and you will find it. You need not wonder at any genius of mine, for as yet I am lavish only with other men's property. But why did I say other men? Whatever is well said by anyone is mine. This also is a saying of Epicurus. If you live according to nature, you will never be poor. If you live according to opinion, you will never be rich. Nature's ways are slight. The demands of opinion are boundless. Suppose that the property of many millionaires is heaped up in your possession. Assume that fortune carries you far beyond the limits of a private income, decks you with gold, clothes you in purple, and brings you to such a degree of luxury and wealth that you can bury the earth under your marble floors, that you may not only possess, but tread upon riches. Add statues, paintings, and whatever any art has devised for the luxury. You will only learn from such things to crave still greater. Natural desires are limited, but those which spring from false opinion can have no stopping point. The false has no limits. When you are traveling on a road, there must be an end, but when astray, your wanderings are limitless. Recall your steps, therefore, from idle things, and when you would know whether that which you seek is based upon a natural or upon a misleading desire, consider whether it can stop at any definite point. If you find, after having traveled far, that there is a more distant goal always in view, you may be sure that this condition is contrary to nature. Farewell. Letter 15 On Brawn and Brains The old Romans had a custom which survived even into my lifetime. They would add to the opening words of a letter, If you are well, it is well. I also am well. Persons like ourselves would do well to say, If you are studying philosophy, it is well.
for this is just what being well means. Without philosophy, the mind is sickly, and the body too, though it may be very powerful, is strong only as that of a madman or a lunatic is strong. This, then, is the sort of health you should primarily cultivate. The other kind of health comes second, and will involve little effort if you wish to be well physically. It is indeed foolish, my dear Lucilius, and very unsuitable for a cultivated man, to work hard over developing the muscles and broadening the shoulders and strengthening the lungs. For, although your heavy feeding produce good results and your sinews grow solid, you can never be a match, either in strength or in weight, for a first-class bull. Besides, by overloading the body with food, you strangle the soul and render it less active. Accordingly, limit the flesh as much as possible and allow free play to the spirit. Many inconveniences beset those who devote themselves to such pursuits. In the first place, they have their exercises, at which they must work and waste their life force and render it less fit to bear a strain or the severer studies. Second, their keen edge is dulled by heavy eating. Besides, they must take orders from slaves of the vilest stamp, men who alternate between the oil flask and the flagon, whose day passes satisfactorily if they have got up a good perspiration and quaffed, to make good what they have lost in sweat, huge draughts of liquor, which will sink deeper because of their fasting, drinking, and sweating. It's the life of a dyspeptic. Now, there are short and simple exercises which tire the body rapidly, and so save our time. And time is something of which we ought to keep strict account. These exercises are running, brandishing weights, and jumping, high jumping or broad jumping, or the kind which I may call the priest's dance, or, in slighting terms, the clothes cleaner's jump. Select for practice any one of these, and you will find it plain and easy. But, whatever you do, come back soon from body to mind. The mind must be exercised both day and night, for it is nourished by moderate labor, and this form of exercise need not be hampered by cold or hot weather, or even by old age. Cultivate that good which improves with the years. Of course, I do not command you to be always bending over your books and your writing materials. The mind must have a change, but a change of such a kind that it is not unnerved, but merely unbent. Writing in a litter shakes up the body, and does not interfere with study. One may read, dictate, converse, or listen to another, nor does walking prevent any of these things. You need not scorn voice culture, but I forbid you to practice raising and lowering your voice by scales and specific intonations. What if you should next propose to take lessons in walking? If you consult the sort of person whom starvation has taught new tricks, you will have someone to regulate your steps, watch every mouthful as you eat, and go to such lengths as you yourself, by enduring him and believing in him, have encouraged his effrontery to go. What, then, you will ask, is my voice to begin at the outset with shouting and straining the lungs to the utmost? No. The natural thing is that it be aroused to such a pitch by easy stages, 
just as persons who are wrangling begin with ordinary conversational tones and then pass to shouting at the top of their lungs. No speaker cries, Help me, citizens! at the outset of his speech. Therefore, whenever your spirit's impulse prompts you, raise a hubbub, now in louder, now in milder tones, according as your voice, as well as your spirit, shall suggest to you when you are moved to such a performance. Then let your voice, when you rein it in and call it back to earth, come down gently, not collapse. It should trail off in tones halfway between high and low, and should not abruptly drop from its raving in the uncouth manner of countrymen. For our purpose is not to give the voice exercise, but make it give us exercise. You see, I have relieved you of no slight bother, and I shall throw in a little complimentary present. It is Greek, too. Here is the proverb. It is an excellent one. The fool's life is empty of gratitude and full of fears. Its course lies wholly toward the future. Who uttered these words, you say? The same writer whom I mentioned before. And what sort of life do you think is meant by the fool's life? That of Baba and Isio? No. He means our own, for we are plunged by our blind desires into ventures which will harm us, but certainly will never satisfy us. For if we could be satisfied with anything, we should have been satisfied long ago. Nor do we reflect how pleasant it is to demand nothing, how noble it is to be contented and not to be dependent upon fortune. Therefore, continually remind yourself, Lucilius, how many ambitions you have attained. When you see many ahead of you, think how many are behind. If you would thank the gods and be grateful for your past life, you should contemplate how many men you have outstripped. But what have you to do with the others? You have outstripped yourself. Fix a limit which you will not even desire to pass should you have the power. At last, then, away with all these treacherous goods. They look better to those who hope for them than to those who have attained them. If there were anything substantial in them, they would sooner or later satisfy you. As it is, they merely rouse the drinker's thirst. Away with fripperies which only serve for show. As to what the future's uncertain lot has in store, why should I demand of fortune that she give rather than demand of myself that I should not crave? And why should I crave? Shall I heap up my winnings and forget that man's lot is unsubstantial? For what end should I toil? Lo. Today is the last. If not, it is near the last. Farewell. Letter 12 On Old Age Wherever I turn, I see evidences of my advancing years. I visited lately my country place and protested against the money which was spent on the tumble-down building. My bailiff maintained that the flaws were not due to his own carelessness. He was doing everything possible, but the house was old. And this was the house which grew under my own hands. What has the future in store for me if stones of my own age 
are already crumbling. I was angry, and I embraced the first opportunity to vent my spleen in the bailiff's presence. It is clear, I cried, that these plane trees are neglected. They have no leaves. Their branches are so gnarled and shriveled. The boles are so rough and unkempt. This would not happen if someone loosened the earth at their feet and watered them. The bailiff swore by my protecting deity that he was doing everything possible and never relaxed his efforts, but those trees were old. Between you and me, I had planted those trees myself. I had seen them in their first leaf. Then I turned to the door and asked, Who is that broken-down dotard? You have done well to place him at the entrance, for he is outward bound. Where did you get him? What pleasure did it give you to take up for burial some other man's dead? But the slave said, Don't you know me, sir? I am Felicio. You used to bring me little images. My father was Philositus, the steward, and I am your pet slave. The man is clean crazy, I remarked. Has my pet slave become a little boy again? But it is quite possible. His teeth are just dropping out. I owe it to my country place that my old age became apparent whithersoever I turned. Let us cherish and love old age, for it is full of pleasure if one knows how to use it. Fruits are most welcome when almost over. Youth is most charming at its close. The last drink delights the toper, the glass which souses him and puts the finishing touch on his drunkenness. Each pleasure reserves to the end the greatest delights which it contains. Life is most delightful when it is on the downward slope, but has not yet reached the abrupt decline. And I myself believe that the period which stands, so to speak, on the edge of the roof, possesses pleasures of its own. Or else the very fact of our not wanting pleasures has taken the place of the pleasures themselves. How comforting it is to have tired out one's appetites and to have done with them. But, you say, it is a nuisance to be looking death in the face. Death, however, should be looked in the face by young and old alike. We are not summoned according to our rating on the censor's list. Moreover, no one is so old that it would be improper for him to hope for another day of existence. And one day, mind you, is a stage on life's journey. Our span of life is divided into parts. It consists of large circles enclosing smaller. One circle embraces and bounds the rest. It reaches from birth to the last day of existence. The next circle limits the period of our young manhood. The third confines all of childhood in its circumference. Again there is, in a class by itself, the year. It contains within itself all the divisions of time, by the multiplication of which we get the total of life. The month is bounded by a narrower ring. The smallest circle of all is the day. But even a day has its beginning and its ending, its sunrise and its sunset. Hence Heraclitus, whose obscure style gave him his surname, remarked, One day is equal to every day. Different persons have interpreted the saying in different ways. 
Some hold that days are equal in number of hours, and this is true, for if by day we mean twenty-four hours' time, all days must be equal, inasmuch as the night acquires what the day loses. But others maintain that one day is equal to all days through resemblance, because the very longest space of time possesses no element which cannot be found in a single day, namely light and darkness, and even to eternity day makes these alternations more numerous, not different when it is shorter and different again when it is longer. Hence, every day ought to be regulated as if it closed the series, as if it rounded out and completed our existence. Pacuvius, who by long occupancy made Syria his own, used to hold a regular burial sacrifice in his own honor, with wine and the usual funeral feasting, and then would have himself carried from the dining-room to his chamber, while eunuchs applauded and sang in Greek to a musical accompaniment. He has lived his life! He has lived his life! Thus, Pacuvius had himself carried out to burial every day. Let us, however, do from a good motive what he used to do from a debased motive. Let us go to sleep with joy and gladness. Let us say, I have lived. The course which fortune set for me is finished. And, if God is pleased to add another day, we should welcome it with glad hearts. That man is happiest and is secure in his own possession of himself who can await the morrow without apprehension. When a man has said, I have lived, every morning he arises he receives a bonus. But now I ought to close my letter. What, you say, shall it come to me without any little offering? Be not afraid. It brings something, nay, more than something, a great deal. For what is more noble than the following saying, of which I make this letter the bearer? It is wrong to live under constraint, but no man is constrained to live under constraint. Of course not. On all sides, lie many short and simple paths to freedom, and let us thank God that no man can be kept in life. We may spurn the very constraints that hold us. Epicurus, you reply, uttered those words. What are you doing with another's property? Any truth I maintain is my own property, and I shall continue to heap quotations from Epicurus upon you so that all persons who swear by the words of another and put a value upon the speaker and not upon the things spoken may understand that the best ideas are common property. Farewell. Letter 13 On Groundless Fears I know that you have plenty of spirit for even before you began to equip yourself with maxims which were wholesome and potent to overcome obstacles, you were taking pride in your contest with fortune. And this is all the more true now that you have grappled with fortune and tested your powers. For our powers can never inspire in us implicit faith in ourselves except when many difficulties have confronted us on this side and on that and have occasionally even come to close quarters with us. It is only in this way that the true spirit can be tested, 
the spirit that will never consent to come under the jurisdiction of things external to ourselves. This is the touchstone of such a spirit. No prize fighter can go with high spirits into the strife if he has never been beaten black and blue. The only contestant who can confidently enter the lists is the man who has seen his own blood, who has felt his teeth rattle beneath his opponent's fist, who has been tripped and felt the full force of his adversary's charge, who has been downed in body, but not in spirit, one who, as often as he falls, rises again with greater defiance than ever. So then, to keep up my figure, fortune has often, in the past, got the upper hand of you, and yet you have not surrendered, but have leaped up and stood your ground still more eagerly. For manliness gains much strength by being challenged. Nevertheless, if you approve, allow me to offer some additional safeguards by which you may fortify yourself. There are more things, Lucilius, likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. I am not speaking with you in the Stoic strain, but in my milder style. For it is our Stoic fashion to speak of all those things which provoke cries and groans as unimportant and beneath notice. But you and I must drop such great-sounding words, although heaven knows they are true enough. What I advise you to do is not to be unhappy before the crisis comes, since it may be that the dangers before which you paled as if they were threatening you will never come upon you. They certainly have not yet come. Accordingly, some things torment us more than they ought. Some torment us before they ought, and some torment us when they ought not to torment us at all. We are in the habit of exaggerating, or imagining, or anticipating, sorrow. The first of these three faults may be postponed for the present, because the subject is under discussion and the case is still in court, so to speak. That which I should call trifling, you will maintain to be most serious for of course I know that some men laugh while being flogged, and that others wince at a box on the ear. We shall consider later whether these evils derive their power from their own strength or from our own weakness. Do me the favor, when men surround you and try to talk you into believing that you are unhappy, to consider not what you hear, but what you yourself feel and to take counsel with your feelings and question yourself independently, because you know your own affairs better than anyone else does. Ask, is there any reason why these persons should condole with me? Why should they be worried or even fear some infection from me, as if troubles could be transmitted? Is there any evil involved, or is it a matter merely of ill report, rather than an evil? Put the question voluntarily to yourself. Am I tormented without sufficient reason? Am I morose, and do I convert what is not an evil into what is an evil? You may retort with the question. How am I to know whether my sufferings are real or imaginary? Here is the rule for such matters. We are tormented either by things present, or by things to come, 
or by both. As to things present, the decision is easy. Suppose that your person enjoys freedom and health, and that you do not suffer from any external injury. As to what may happen to it in the future, we shall see later on. Today, there is nothing wrong with it. But, you say, something will happen to it. First of all, consider whether your proofs of future trouble are sure. For it is more often the case that we are troubled by our apprehensions and that we are mocked by that mocker rumor, which is wont to settle wars, but much more often settles individuals. Yes, my dear Lucilius, we agree too quickly with what people say. We do not put to the test those things which cause our fear. We do not examine into them. We blench and retreat, just like soldiers who are forced to abandon their camp because of a dust cloud raised by stampeding cattle, or are thrown into a panic by the spreading of some unauthenticated rumor. And somehow or other, it is the idle report that disturbs us most. For truth has its own definite boundaries, but that which arises from uncertainty is delivered over to guesswork and the irresponsible license of a frightened mind. That is why no fear is so ruinous and so uncontrollable as panic fear. For other fears are groundless, but this fear is witless. Let us then look carefully into the matter. It is likely that some troubles will befall us, but it is not a present fact. How often has the unexpected happened? How often has the expected never come to pass? And even though it is ordained to be, what does it avail to run out to meet your suffering? You will suffer soon enough when it arrives. So look forward, meanwhile, to better things. What shall you gain by doing this? Time. There will be many happenings, meanwhile, which will serve to postpone, or end, or pass on to another person, the trials which are near or even in your very presence. A fire has opened the way to flight. Men have been let down softly by a catastrophe. Sometimes the sword has been checked even at the victim's throat. Men have survived their own executioners. Even bad fortune is fickle. Perhaps it will come, perhaps not. In the meantime, it is not. So look forward to better things. The mind at times fashions for itself false shapes of evil when there are no signs that point to any evil. It twists into the worst construction some word of doubtful meaning, or it fancies some personal grudge to be more serious than it really is, considering not how angry the enemy is, but to what lengths he may go if he is angry. But life is not worth living, and there is no limit to our sorrows, if we indulge our fears to the greatest possible extent. In this matter, let prudence help you, and contemn with a resolute spirit even when it is in plain sight. If you cannot do this, counter one weakness with another and temper your fear with hope. There is nothing so certain among these objects of fear that it is not more certain still that things we dread sink into nothing and that things we hope for mock us. Accordingly, 
Weigh carefully your hopes as well as your fears, and whenever all the elements are in doubt, decide in your own favor. Believe what you prefer. And if fear wins a majority of the votes, incline in the other direction anyhow, and cease to harass your soul, reflecting continually that most mortals, even when no troubles are actually at hand, or are certainly to be expected in the future, become excited and disquieted. No one calls a halt on himself when he begins to be urged ahead, nor does he regulate his alarm according to the truth. No one says, The author of the story is a fool, and he who has believed it is a fool, as well as he who fabricated it. We let ourselves drift with every breeze. We are frightened at uncertainties, just as if they were certain. We observe no moderation. The slightest thing turns the scales and throws us forthwith into a panic. But I am ashamed either to admonish you sternly or to try to beguile you with such mild remedies. Let another say. Perhaps the worst will not happen. You yourself must say, Well, what if it does happen? Let us see who wins. Perhaps it happens for my best interests. It may be that such a death will shed credit upon my life. Socrates was ennobled by the hemlock draught, wrenched from Cato's hand his sword, the vindicator of liberty, and you deprive him of the greatest share of his glory. I am exhorting you far too long, since you need reminding rather than exhortation. The path on which I am leading you is not different from that on which your nature leads you. You were born to such conduct as I describe. Hence, there is all the more reason why you should increase and beautify the good that is in you. But now, to close my letter. I have only to stamp the usual seal upon it, in other words, to commit thereto some noble message to be delivered to you. The fool, with all his other faults, has this also. He is always getting ready to live. Reflect, my esteemed Lucilius, what this saying means, and you will see how revolting is the fickleness of men who lay down every day new foundations of life and begin to build up fresh hopes even at the brink of the grave. Look within your own mind for individual instances. You will think of old men who are preparing themselves at that very hour for a political career, or for travel, or for business. And what is baser than getting ready to live when you are already old? I should not name the author of this motto, except that it is somewhat unknown to fame, and it is not one of those popular sayings of Epicurus which I have allowed myself to praise and to appropriate. Farewell. Letter 14 On the Reasons for Withdrawing from the World I confess that we all have an inborn affection for our body. I confess that we are entrusted with its guardianship. I do not maintain that the body is not to be indulged at all, but I maintain that we must not be slaves to it. He will have many masters who makes his body his master, who is over-fearful in its behalf, who judges everything according to the body. 
we should conduct ourselves not as if we ought to live for the body, but as if we could not live without it. Our too great love for it makes us restless with fears, burdens us with cares, and exposes us to insults. Virtue is held too cheap by the man who counts his body too dear. We should cherish the body with the greatest care, but we should also be prepared when reason, self-respect, and duty demand the sacrifice to deliver it even to the flames. Let us, however, in so far as we can, avoid discomforts as well as dangers, and withdraw to safe ground by thinking continually how we may repel all objects of fear. If I am not mistaken, there are three main classes of these. We fear want, we fear sickness, and we fear the troubles which result from the violence of the stronger. And of all these, that which shakes us most is the dread which hangs over us from our neighbor's ascendancy, for it is accompanied by great outcry and uproar. But the natural evils which I have mentioned, want and sickness, steal upon us silently with no shock of terror to the eye or to the ear. The other kind of evil comes, so to speak, in the form of a huge parade. Surrounding it is a retinue of swords and fire and chains, and a mob of beasts to be let loose upon the disemboweled entrails of men. Picture to yourself under this head the prison, the cross, the rack, the hook, and the stake which they drive straight through a man until it protrudes from his throat. Think of human limbs torn apart by chariots, driven in opposite directions, of the terrible shirt smeared and interwoven with inflammable materials, and of all the other contrivances devised by cruelty in addition to those which I have mentioned. It is not surprising, then, if our greatest terror is of such a fate, for it comes in many shapes, and its paraphernalia are terrifying. For, just as the torturer accomplishes more in proportion to the number of instruments which he displays, indeed, the spectacle overcomes those who would have patiently withstood the suffering, similarly, of all the agencies which coerce and master our minds, the most effective are those which can make a display. Those other troubles are, of course, not less serious. I mean, hunger, thirst, ulcers of the stomach, and fever that parches our very bowels. They are, however, secret. They have no bluster and no heralding. But these, like huge arrays of war, prevail by virtue of their display and their equipment. Let us, therefore, see to it that we abstain from giving offence. It is sometimes the people that we ought to fear, or sometimes a body of influential oligarchs in the Senate, if the method of governing the Senate is such that most of the business is done by that body, and sometimes individuals equipped with power by the people and against the people. It is burdensome to keep the friendship of all such persons. It is enough not to make enemies of them. So the wise man will never provoke the anger of those in power, nay, he will even turn his course, precisely as he would turn from a storm if he were steering a ship. When you travelled to Sicily, you crossed the straits. The reckless pilot scorned the blustering south wind, the wind which roughens the Sicilian sea and forces it into choppy currents, 
he sought not the shore on the left, but the strand hard by the place where Charybdis throws the seas into confusion. Your more careful pilot, however, questions those who know the locality as to the tides and the meaning of the clouds. He holds his course far from that region notorious for its swirling waters. Our wise man does the same. He shuns a strong man who may be injurious to him, making a point of not seeming to avoid him, because an important part of one's safety lies in not seeking safety openly. For what one avoids, one condemns. We should therefore look about us and see how we may protect ourselves from the mob. And first of all, we should have no cravings like theirs, for rivalry results in strife. Again, let us possess nothing that can be snatched from us to the great profit of a plotting foe. Let there be as little booty as possible on your person. No one sets out to shed the blood of his fellow men for the sake of bloodshed. At any rate, very few. More murderers speculate on their profits than give vent to hatred. If you are empty-handed, the highwayman passes you by. Even along an infested road, the poor may travel in peace. Next, we must follow the old adage and avoid three things with special care. Hatred, jealousy, and scorn. And wisdom alone can show you how this may be done. It is hard to observe a mean. We must be wary of letting the fear of jealousy lead us into becoming objects of scorn, lest, when we choose not to stamp others down, we let them think that they can stamp us down. The power to inspire fear has caused many men to be in fear. Let us withdraw ourselves in every way, for it is as harmful to be scorned as to be admired. One must therefore take refuge in philosophy. This pursuit, not only in the eyes of good men, but also in the eyes of those who are even moderately bad, is a sort of protecting emblem. For speech-making at the bar, or any other pursuit that claims the people's attention, wins enemies for a man. But philosophy is peaceful and minds her own business. Men cannot scorn her. She is honored by every profession, even the vilest among them. Evil can never grow so strong, and nobility of character can never be so plotted against, that the name of philosophy shall cease to be worshipful and sacred. Philosophy itself, however, should be practiced with calmness and moderation. Very well, then, you retort. Do you regard the philosophy of Marcus Cato as moderate? Cato's voice strove to check a civil war. Cato parted the swords of maddened chieftains. When some fell foul of Pompey and others fell foul of Caesar, Cato defied both parties at once. Nevertheless, one may well question whether, in those days, a wise man ought to have taken any part in public affairs and ask, What do you mean, Marcus Cato? It is not now a question of freedom. Long since has freedom gone to rack and ruin. The question is whether it is Caesar or Pompey who controls the state. Why, Cato, should you take sides in that dispute? It is no business of yours. A tyrant is being selected. What does it concern you who conquers? The better man may win, but the winner is bound to be the worse man. 
I have referred to Cato's final role, but even in previous years the wise man was not permitted to intervene in such plundering of the state. For what could Cato do but raise his voice and utter unavailing words? At one time he was bustled by the mob and spat upon, and forcibly removed from the forum, and marked for exile. At another he was taken straight to prison from the Senate chamber. However, we shall consider later whether the wise man ought to give his attention to politics. Meanwhile, I beg you to consider those Stoics who, shut out from public life, have withdrawn into privacy for the purpose of improving men's existence and framing laws for the human race without incurring the displeasure of those in power. The wise man will not upset the customs of the people, nor will he invite the attention of the populace by any novel ways of living. What then? Can one who follows out this plan be safe in any case? I cannot guarantee you this any more than I can guarantee good health in the case of a man who observes moderation, although, as a matter of fact, good health results from such moderation. Sometimes a vessel perishes in harbor. But what do you think happens on the open sea? And how much more beset with danger that man would be who even in his leisure is not secure, if he were busily working at many things. Innocent persons sometimes perish. Who would deny that? But the guilty perish more frequently. A soldier's skill is not at fault if he receives the death blow through his armor. And finally, the wise man regards the reason for all his actions, but not the results. The beginning is in our own power. Fortune decides the issue, but I do not allow her to pass sentence upon myself. You may say, but she can inflict a measure of suffering and of trouble. The highwayman does not pass sentence when he slays. Now, you are stretching forth your hand for the daily gift. Golden indeed will be the gift with which I shall load you, and inasmuch as we have mentioned gold, let me tell you how its use and enjoyment may bring you greater pleasure. He who needs riches least enjoys riches most. Author's name, please, you say. Now, to show you how generous I am, it is my intent to praise the dicta of other schools. The phrase belongs to Epicurus, or Metrodorus, or someone of that particular thinking shop. But what difference does it make who spoke the words? They were uttered for the world. He who craves riches feels fear on their account. No man, however, enjoys a blessing that brings anxiety. He is always trying to add a little more. While he puzzles over increasing his wealth, he forgets how to use it. He collects his accounts, he wears out the pavement in the forum, he turns over his ledger. In short, he ceases to be master and becomes a steward. Farewell. Letter 9 On Philosophy and Friendship You desire to know whether Epicurus is right when, in one of his letters, he rebukes those who hold that the wise man is self-sufficient 
and for that reason does not stand in need of friendships. This is the objection raised by Epicurus against Stilbo, and those who believe that the supreme good is a soul which is insensible to feeling. We are bound to meet with a double meaning if we try to express the Greek term lack of feeling summarily in a single word, rendering it by the Latin word impatientia, for it may be understood in the meaning the opposite to that which we wish it to have. What we mean to express is a soul which rejects any sensation of evil. But people will interpret the idea as that of a soul which can endure no evil. Consider, therefore, whether it is not better to say, a soul that cannot be harmed, or a soul entirely beyond the realm of suffering. There is this difference between ourselves and the other school. Our ideal wise man feels his troubles, but overcomes them. Their wise man does not even feel them. But we and they alike hold this idea, that the wise man is self-sufficient. Nevertheless, he desires friends, neighbors, and associates, no matter how much he is sufficient unto himself. And mark how self-sufficient he is, for on occasion he can be content with a part of himself. If he lose a hand through disease or war, or if some accident puts out one or both of his eyes, he will be satisfied with what is left, taking as much pleasure in his impaired and maimed body as he took when it was sound. But while he does not pine for these parts if they are missing, he prefers not to lose them. In this sense, the wise man is self-sufficient, that he can do without friends, not that he desires to do without them. When I say can, I mean this. He endures the loss of a friend with equanimity. But he need never lack friends, for it lies in his own control how soon he shall make good a loss. Just as Phidias, if he lose a statue, can straightway carve another, even so our master in the art of making friendships can fill the place of a friend he has lost. If you ask how one can make oneself a friend quickly, I will tell you, provided we are agreed that I may pay my debt at once and square the account, so far as this letter is concerned. Hikato says, I can show you a filter, compounded without drugs, herbs, or any witch's incantation. If you would be loved, love. Now there is great pleasure, not only in maintaining old and established friendships, but also in beginning and acquiring new ones. There is the same difference between winning a new friend and having already won him, as there is between the farmer who sows and the farmer who reaps. The philosopher Atalus used to say, It is more pleasant to make than to keep a friend as it is more pleasant to the artist to paint than to have finished painting. When one is busy and absorbed in one's work, the very absorption affords great delight. But when one has withdrawn one's hand from the completed masterpiece, the pleasure is not so keen. Henceforth, it is the fruits of his art that he enjoys. It was the art itself that he enjoyed while he was painting. In the case of our children, their young manhood yields the more abundant fruits, but their infancy was sweeter. Let us now return to the question. The wise man, I say, self-sufficient though he be, 
nevertheless desires friends if only for the purpose of practicing friendship, in order that his noble qualities may not lie dormant. Not, however, for the purpose mentioned by Epicurus in the letter quoted above, that there may be someone to sit by him when he is ill, to help him when he is in prison, or in want, but that he may have someone by whose sickbed he himself may sit, someone a prisoner in hostile hands, whom he himself may set free. He who regards himself only, and enters upon friendships for this reason, reckons wrongly. The end will be like the beginning. He has made friends with one who might assist him out of bondage. At the first rattle of the chain, such a friend will desert him. These are the so-called fair-weather friendships. One who is chosen for the sake of utility will be satisfactory only so long as he is useful. Hence, prosperous men are blockaded by troops of friends, but those who have failed stand amid vast loneliness, their friends fleeing from the very crisis which is to test their worth. Hence also, we notice those many shameful cases of persons who, through fear, desert or betray. The beginning and the end cannot but harmonize. He who begins to be your friend because it pays will also cease because it pays. A man will be attracted by some reward offered in exchange for his friendship if he be attracted by aught in friendship other than friendship itself. For what purpose, then, do I make a man my friend? In order to have someone for whom I may die whom I may follow into exile, against whose death I may stake my own life and pay the pledge to. The friendship which you portray is a bargain and not a friendship. It regards convenience only and looks to the results. Beyond question, the feeling of a lover has in it something akin to friendship. One might call it friendship run mad. But, though this is true, does anyone love for the sake of gain? or promotion, or renown? Pure love, careless of all other things, kindles the soul with desire for the beautiful object, not without the hope of a return of the affection. What then? Can a cause which is more honorable produce a passion that is base? You may retort, We are now discussing the question whether friendship is to be cultivated for its own sake. On the contrary, nothing more urgently requires demonstration, for if friendship is to be sought for its own sake, he may seek it who is self-sufficient. How, then, you ask, does he seek it? Precisely as he seeks an object of great beauty, not attracted to it by desire for gain, nor yet frightened by the instability of fortune, one who seeks friendship for favorable occasions strips it of all its nobility. The wise man is self-sufficient. This phrase, my dear Lucilius, is incorrectly explained by many, for they withdraw the wise man from the world and force him to dwell within his own skin. But we must mark with care what the sentence signifies and how far it applies. The wise man is sufficient unto himself for a happy existence but not for mere existence. For he needs many helps towards mere existence, but for a happy existence 
He needs only a sound and upright soul, one that despises fortune. I should like also to state to you one of the distinctions of Chrysippus, who declares that the wise man is in want of nothing and yet needs many things. On the other hand, he says, nothing is needed by the fool, for he does not understand how to use anything, but he is in want of everything. The wise man needs hands, eyes, and many things that are necessary for his daily use, but he is in want of nothing, for want implies a necessity, and nothing is necessary to the wise man. Therefore, although he is self-sufficient, yet he has need of friends. He craves as many friends as possible, not, however, that he may live happily, for he will live happily even without friends. The supreme good calls for no practical aids from outside. It is developed at home, and arises entirely within itself. If the good seeks any portion of itself from without, it begins to be subject to the play of fortune. People may say, But what sort of existence will the wise man have, if he be left friendless when thrown into prison, or when stranded in some foreign nation, or when delayed on a long voyage, or when out upon a lonely shore? His life will be like that of Jupiter, who, amid the dissolution of the world, when the gods are confounded together and nature rests for a space from her work, can retire into himself and give himself over to his own thoughts. In some such way as this, the sage will act. He will retreat into himself and live with himself. As long as he is allowed to order his affairs according to his judgment, he is self-sufficient and marries a wife. He is self-sufficient and brings up children. He is self-sufficient, and yet could not live if he had to live without the society of man. Natural promptings, and not his own selfish needs, draw him into friendships. For just as other things have for us an inherent attractiveness, so has friendship. As we hate solitude and crave society, as nature draws men to each other, so in this matter also there is an attraction which makes us desirous of friendship. Nevertheless, though the sage may love his friends dearly, often comparing them with himself and putting them ahead of himself, yet all the good will be limited to his own being, and he will speak the words which were spoken by the very Stilbo whom Epicurus criticizes in his letter. For Stilbo, after his country was captured and his children and his wife lost, as he emerged from the general desolation, alone, and yet happy, spoke as follows to Demetrius, called Sacker of Cities, because of the destruction he brought upon them, in answer to the question whether he had lost anything. I have all my goods with me. There is a brave and stout-hearted man for you. The enemy conquered, but Stilbo conquered his conqueror. I have lost nothing. I. He forced Demetrius to wonder whether he himself had conquered after all. My goods are all with me. In other words, he deemed nothing that might be taken from him to be a good. We marvel at certain animals 
because they can pass through fire and suffer no bodily harm. But how much more marvelous is a man who has marched forth unhurt and unscathed through fire and sword and devastation? Do you understand now how much easier it is to conquer a whole tribe than to conquer one man? This saying of Stilbo makes common ground with Stoicism. The Stoic also can carry his goods unimpaired through cities that have been burned to ashes, for he is self-sufficient. Such are the bounds which he sets to his own happiness. But you must not think that our school alone can utter noble words. Epicurus himself, the reviler of Stilbo, spoke similar language. Put it down to my credit, though I have already wiped out my debt for the present day. He says, Whoever does not regard what he has as most ample wealth is unhappy, though he be master of the whole world. Or, if the following seems to you a more suitable phrase, for we must try to render the meaning and not the mere words, a man may rule the world and still be unhappy if he does not feel that he is supremely happy. In order, however, that you may know that these sentiments are universal, suggested, of course, by nature, you will find in one of the comic poets this verse. Unblessed is he who thinks himself unblessed. Or, what does your condition matter if it is bad in your own eyes? You may say, what then? If yonder man, rich by base means, and yonder man, lord of many but slave of more, shall call themselves happy, will their own opinion make them happy? It matters not what one says, but one feels. Also, not how one feels on one particular day, but how one feels at all times. There is no reason, however, why you should fear that this great privilege will fall into unworthy hands. Only the wise man is pleased with his own. Folly is ever troubled with weariness of itself. Farewell.